1: coaches network
2: how are we doing people i hope you're well it's been an incredible week for me and i hope it has been for you guys too um, i'm pleased to say you know this week's all the newly developed success series land this week so there's a new episode on wednesdays every wednesday where i'll be joined by my good friend jazz rose to discuss all things personal development but i'll leave you guys to you know to take a look at that in your own time because i don't want to take anything away from today's episode but before we get on to that I do want to take a moment just to remind everyone that's been getting in touch regarding the mentoring program and all the mentoring workshops. There will be some more spaces opening up from July. So please, if you are interested, do get in touch ASAP because I know that they'll be filled quickly. In fact, I'm sure of it. Also, guys, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on whichever platform you're listening to this on. And if you're following us and if you're on social media, head over to Twitter, head over to Instagram. Make sure you're following us so that's at the coaches net on Twitter, at the coaches network on Instagram. Now I'm going to take a brief moment, quickly, uh, just to read another five star review, and you know I have to admit, I love getting these. It was great to hear the value that we're adding. Um, and today's review is from Shugs one two three four five. It's interesting mindset and approach to coaching, worth a listen, and can only get better. Well done, Yasin co Firstly, thank you, Shugs, for the review. Really appreciate. Always love a positive review, and more importantly, you're right the show can and it will continue to get better but only with your help guys so please if you are listening to this right now head over to the apple podcast leave us a review if that's where you're listening to this on if not not a big deal you can drop me a dm on twitter or instagram and let me and my team know what kind of impact the podcast is having on you and what some of your key takeaways have been so far in fact what i want you to do is take a second right now and share this podcast with someone that you think is going to see it of value now there's been some phenomenal discussions taking place with all the mentees and I want to share that with you guys too so don't forget to get in touch regarding the mentoring program as well anyways enough of all of that on to today's episode number 114 I still can't believe it's been only 13 months guys and already I'm 114 episodes into this podcast journey it's been a great experience for me and I can't thank you guys enough for being part of that journey Ah, just a quick one guys, there was a few technical difficulties in recording this one So, there was massive parts that you know I really wanted you guys to, go to listen to in this But unfortunately weren't able to get them saved However, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's a fantastic conversation taking place Finally, you know I want to get on to today's guest um, Now today's guest has been on the show before And I can honestly say that it was one of my favourite episodes so far Definitely in my top 5 and I know so many of you have been in touch in the past to let me know it's been one of yours too so I just had to get him back on my guest today is none other than Trevor Reagan and last time we spoke it was a truly inspirational conversation so I urge you if you haven't already listened to it in fact even if you have already listened to it head back to episode 30 have another listen study the conversation because there's some real gems in there from Trevor on that one but without further ado here is today's episode guys Another incredible one for you to look forward to. So don't forget to let me know how you found it. Enjoy it, guys. Have a great day, have a great weekend, and have a great week. Right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network, part of our how-to series. My guest this evening is Trevor Reagan. Trevor is um, a speaker and a coach who's passionate about learning. Um, he's also the founder of the Learner Lab. Trevor good evening how are you?
3: I'm great thank you so much for having me on this is my first uh, clubhouse too so I'm excited.
2: Awesome so you've got, you know the second clubhouse virginity in a row now uh, in terms of guests <laughs> um, but Trev, just for maybe not anyone that isn't too familiar with yourself I and mean, you know I'm sure my bio hasn't really done you much justice uh, would you mind just sharing a bit about who you are and what you do?
3: Yeah, I've spent about 10 years now, and my big goal was to research the learning process. And more specifically, like, how can people become better learners? Like, what would be the essential skills and tools to build that could help someone get better at getting better? And so that's sort of been my mission for 10 years. Um, It started off really, really narrowly focused on basketball. And after a few years, I realized, wow, a lot of this science, science, uh, uh, it it plays a role in almost any learning journey. And so, yeah, I started in the basketball world, but then it started to trickle out to other sports. And now, honestly, my work, I, I work with students. I work with people in the corporate world. I work with a lot of sports teams still, because in the end, really, no matter who you are, what you do, becoming a better learner is a good idea. And so uh a lot of these tools that we've discovered and teach help i think a lot of different people from a lot of different places awesome
2: thank you for that so trev you know i just want to kind of you know in our last conversation in a few months back and i'm you know i've still got people getting in touch with me telling me how how fascinating and inspiring that episode was for them uh certainly was for me but you know we talked around getting outside your comfort zone and how to become comfortable outside of your comfort zone or at least accepting Mm -hmm. that uncomfortable is not a bad thing um sure we're going to kind of move in a different direction slightly. You're talking about resilience here. Um, so I want us to kind of just maybe start off with maybe what you consider resilience to be um, and some of your experiences that maybe we'll off from there. Yep.
3: Yeah, this is the, the perfect part two of our first conversation. I think a good way to think about it would be what we talked about last time is getting out of the comfort zone, getting into the jungle and out of the zoo and the different tools that could help us do that. For me resilience is how do i stay in the jungle (laughs) so like how do we actually stay there because i think part of the learning process is starting but maybe the more important part is sustaining like how do you sustain the action that takes place in the jungle how do you sustain the action that takes place out of the comfort zone which Which is is why why i think resilience is a huge piece of the the learning puzzle that doesn't get enough enough attention attention. like a lot of of the the times we're just trying to get the ball rolling when like, like, look, we need to figure out how to sustain that if we really want to make a change. And so when I think of resilience, it's how do I deal with the challenges and obstacles and problems that are bound to happen? Like if I spend more time out of my comfort zone, I'm going to struggle more. I'm going to face more problems and obstacles. How do I deal with those? And then I think my second definition of the way I think about resilience would be, Sometimes we just talk about like moving through or dealing with a challenge. And I think when we're really a great learner, we can actually impact what we get from the challenge. So not just like moving through it, but trying to get more from it. Because I think a great learner is equipped with the tools to do that.
2: No, I think you made some good points there. And I think you just, you know, just touching on that, you want to take it back to the top, top of the conversation. What you said there was you started off in basketball um, and then later realized that this was something that could be, transferable and applied in i guess not just the sporting industry but just in general life mm-hmm. i guess how did you get into this line of i guess thought if you like um because obviously you know, you must have stumbled upon something somewhere that caught your curiosity around how important this element of resilience is initially mm-hmm. within, the, within the sporting coaching and coaching specific world but obviously you know you then stumbled into i guess more curious thoughts to take it wider than that
3: yeah so A lot of the stuff that I initially was looking into was in kind of like the motor learning world, which is like, here's better ways to design practice to get more from it. But what you realize is a lot of those adjustments to improve a practice, make it more difficult. And it kind of slapped me in the face because I was like training these basketball players and making the practice more difficult according to the science, but they weren't like mentally equipped to deal with that. And so it was kind of like I stumbled into it, which was, yeah, we can understand the research of how to create better drills, create a better practice. But if we don't take the time to mentally prepare our athletes to deal with those challenges and struggles, they're not going to get the most from it. And so it kind of, stumbled into that by accident and so then my journey took me to like well how do we mentally equip people to become better learners like what are the tools to build to help them kind of extract more from the struggles that we're creating in practice and so it was kind of by accident and kind of by just me being an idiot and not really thinking this through and because of that i mean that's one of the best things that's happened to my business and just me personally is realizing like look It's a one-two punch. It's not just about creating uh, a great practice. We have to really create great learners as well. And a lot of that is mental. And I think things really take off when we do not just one, not just the other. Because if you only do mental but never improve the practice, you're not going to see much change. If you only improve the practice and never do mental, you're not going to see much change. We got to do both, which is hard. But I think that's the one-two punch that we're chasing.
2: No, excellent. You know, just on that, then you, you talk there about the importance of that, you know, it's almost that technical versus psych stuff, isn't it? Really in understanding, you know, like you said, the motor, the motor learning elements of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious now, you know, I know that you've obviously had a, a, one of your biggest influences has been John Kessel and the way that he works. And, you know, I, I, I've had the opportunity to sit with John and had a conversation with him around some of his, his, his ways of working. So I guess in terms of developing an environment where we're creating a more positive learning environment or po- creating potentially more positive learning, uh, opportunities for people or athletes in this case, what would you say some of the key considerations are in that res- in that, in that process?
3: So I think John was one of the first people to get me started. And he kind of pointed me towards the science. And then I spent a lot of time on the road meeting the actual scientists. So I hung out with Dr. Richard Schmidt. I got lucky and got to meet him before he passed away. Um, The way I think about it would be, yeah, part of it is creating a more positive environment. But the other part is just spending some time helping people that you're working with believe that they can grow. And that's sometimes missing. Like sometimes you're teaching me a skill and deep down, I don't believe I can learn it. And without that belief that I can, I'm really not going to sustain the action required to build it. And so part of creating a better learning environment is building the belief that change is possible. And spending a lot of time on that. Uh, I think the other piece that I would consider is upgrading the way we, we talk about discomfort and tough emotions. We touched a little bit on this last time, but it's even more important when we're talking about resilience. It's like, look, if I'm stretched out of my comfort zone, it's going to cause discomfort. It's called a comfort zone for a reason. So like, if I'm out of it, it's no longer comfortable. But the problem is, the way society talks about discomfort, we assume it's a bad thing. And so now I'm out there, I'm dealing with the challenge. uh, I'm moving through an obstacle. I feel that discomfort and I'm trained to look at that as a negative that I might be doing something wrong. And so we spend a lot of time no matter who we're working with, helping people understand, look, discomfort is human. When you're stretched out of your comfort zone, it's going to create some tough emotions. That doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. That's sort of part of the game. It's not always fun to feel like that, but it's human. It's okay. So we spend a lot of time on that, the belief, the feeling. And then the the third tool of resilience that we spend a lot of time uh, teaching is just like the ability to kind of zoom out a bit from the challenge and look for and appreciate the opportunities to grow. Now, that's kind of a tough skill to build. It's not just maintaining a fake positive attitude. It's kind of being realistic and objective about the challenge and then looking for, uh, even if it's small, an opportunity to grow and get better within the challenge. So I'd say those are sort of like the three tools of becoming a better learner, but also the three tools of becoming more resilient. I think learning and resilience in a way, they're the same thing, because what is a great learner? Someone who can acquire new skills, deal with challenges they can adapt. What is someone who's resilient? Someone who can deal with challenges and adapt. And so I think becoming a better learner is like sort of the pathway to becoming more resilient. It's the belief we can grow the willingness to feel uncomfortable and not shame ourselves when we do feel uncomfortable. And then that skill of what we call framing, which is finding the opportunity and a challenge. And now each one of those things, you could go deep. There are sub skills underneath them, but those are the like mental skills we're looking at. Once we got the mental skills, then we start to incorporate some of the Kessel stuff, some of the Richard Schmidt stuff, uh, some of uh, Dr. Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, they talk a lot about stuff like this, which is how do you increase the struggle that happens in practice in the right way so people get more from it? There's a lot of ways to increase difficulty. There's a lot of ways to increase struggle that aren't effective, that aren't optimal, but there's a few that are super helpful. And so it's getting clear on what those are. And starting to ratchet up the struggle, ratchet up the difficulty, and that will incru- improve the, uh, qu- the quality of the practice. But only after we've established those three, like, mental skills.
2: Mm. No, definitely. You make some great points. And I think I want to kind of bring us back to something that we touched on in the last conversation around maybe the idea of unopposed versus opposed practice. And I know, you know, we use the analogy of the, the jungle tiger versus the zoo tiger. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the zoo tiger is almost trained in a particular way to do certain things on repetition, which is not necessarily a bad thing unless we look into, I guess, honing in on certain specific skills, if you like. Yep. Um, as yep. opposed to the jungle tiger who's is a bit more in a, a randomized environment, if you like. Um yep. Yep. So I guess kind of off the back of that then, and just linking into what you've just said there, what would you say are some of the key uh components of creating practice which does help athletes in terms of I guess developing those, mm-hmm. those things that you just talked about there. And just the yep. second, second point to that, oh, sorry, is you talked about the, I guess, the comparisons and similarities between learning and resilience.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Whilst you said they're very similar, um, would you not say that one requires, uh, or learning more specifically requires an element of reflection, which resilience may not necessarily require, if that makes sense.
3: I would say they both do because I think learning absolutely requires reflection. Like if you just experience something and you're not really focused on it, we know that you're not going to get much out of it. That's one problem with making practice too easy and predictable is my brain can kind of slip into autopilot and my attention and focus isn't really on the action. And that's what happens when it becomes too easy and repetitive. Uh, Imagine if you had like flashcards and we all used to study with flashcards. If you never shuffle the order, we've all been there where you start to know what's coming next. And so your brain is kind of an autopilot. You've memorized the order. It's not hard. If you simply shuffled the flashcards every time, you no longer can predict what's coming next. It's a bit more difficult and it engages your brain in a different way so that's a little bit more struggle but it creates more focus and therefore i'm going to see more retention from that strategy than not shuffling now the 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 catch 22 the difficult or i guess the trap here is well it's easier to not shuffle it feels better to not shuffle i get more right if i don't shuffle but if i'm really trying to retain the information i should shuffle and that's the problem like that's the the trap with all of this stuff is well, if the goal is just to look good and feel good, there's one type of practice that will really help us look good and feel good in the moment. But that's not the best style of practice for trying to retain the information. And I guess Kessel talks about like transfer, which is if I see progress in practice, it needs to show up in the game. And if it doesn't, that's low transfer. And so, The ways to increase transfer are to make the practice a bit more difficult because it creates and engages my brain in a different way. Reflection is the same. If I experience something and never think about it again, without the reflection, I'm not going to grow as much as I could. So, a good way to engage our focus is by making the practice a bit more difficult. And then, a good way to really enhance what we get from the situation. And I I still think that plays a role in, in resilience as well. Is yes, reflecting on it.
2: it. So, just on that, then you know, you talk there about you know, I love the analogy, by the way, around the, the flashcards and looking at it from that perspective. But would you then say that? How, I guess what 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 frequency do we start to look at these flashcards and make make those adjustments essentially? Because you know, at some stage, we do want to increase, the, 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 I guess, the, the depth of the, the knowledge or depth of the learning. Um, I guess that's being t- undertaken but how do we gauge for ourselves and maybe essentially how soon we should maybe turn the dial up if that makes sense?
3: It's probably sooner than you think. There's no really concrete rule, but it's sooner than you think because we're going to want to just stay in the no shuffle mode. But the sooner we get to shuffle mode, the better. It's just like if you were about to give a TED talk and you had three months to practice, of course, you're going to spend some of that time alone. And you're going to have notes and you're going to go through your talk. But I would say the sooner you're doing it without notes in front of other people, the better that practice is going to be. Now, I'm not saying your very first rep has to be in front of people with no notes, but I think... The sooner we get to more game-like, the better if you're trying to to prepare prepare for the TED Talk. And then you use the same logic for really any skill. Of course, we got to spend time helping people get the feel for something. What does it look like? What does it feel like? And once we know that, we can start to make it a little more game-like. This doesn't mean we just throw them out into the wild and hope for the best, but we start to ratchet it up. And what we're trying to do is identify the variables we have to deal with when we're actually executing the skill. So if you're giving a TED talk, one, you don't have notes. Two, you have to do it on the first try. They don't let you do 19 and then do the next, like the 20th is the recorded one. It's like one and it's recorded and there are people watching. So, okay, those are three variables. Now, how could you take those three variables and improve the quality of practice? Well, one is get rid of the notes as soon as you can. Two, practice in practice front of, in people, front of even people, even it, if it's even friends it, or family, that'll, that'll be good. good. And then the, the key, the other yeah. one we haven't mentioned today is spacing. So sometimes when we're trying to practice something, we, we don't allow our brain to forget it. And so without spacing, again, I can slip into autopilot. And I did this. This is I screwed up my TED Talk practice about a year ago doing this because I would run through it and make a mistake and then immediately give the talk again. And without the spacing, of so course, I did thing, it perfectly, perfectly the second, the second time. time because mm-hmm. like, like the, the mistake was fresh on my mind. I corrected it. I did it. But it was like false progress. Actually, a better way to practice would be I give the talk. I identify a mistake. I wait an hour and give it again. That's going to require more attention and more focus. And that's going to be more difficult. But if I can nail it, then it's much better.
2: I think no, you make a great point. Then I definitely see what you mean in terms of, I guess, the focus element because you are going to have to maybe laser laser focus in a bit more on that, having kind of gone away mm-hmm. from it coming back. So I guess a couple of things I've got off mm-hmm. the back of that. Then, firstly, what type of questions might we as coaches start to ask? So you know, in in the in, you know in my sport, with a lot of the players I work with, I don't really believe in the idea of unopposed practice unless it's got context. Um, so what I mean by that, as an example, so I'm working in football, aka soccer um if I've got a player who's picked up the ball in the I don't know the midfield third and he plays it out to the wide wide right and then the player is looking to run down now I can just set a practice up where that simply happens without any of the potential variables which might exist within it and get them mm-hmm. to work a pattern if you like um but obviously once the pattern is now affected with the variables i.e extra opposition players and whatnot the whole context changes um yeah. so for me I, I kind of, like to use as you and as you almost use a dial turn the pressure up i might put yep. the players in there straight away but i might have them unopposed in just a static if you like just so that they've got a visual to, of what they're working around mm-hmm. um, so i guess you know, my first question to you then is looking at that what are your views on having unopposed practice firstly in in the sense if there was no opposition players in i guess just doing some sort of pattern work mm-hmm. um my personal view is that i'm not i'm not against it but i think it needs to have context when it is used so of right that player who starts on the ball, i want you to play it out in this way because in theory we're looking at a player in this position three yards ahead of you which is which is now provoking you to do that if that makes sense and having those cues to kind of work off so if they're not in front of them they can at least start to visualize that
3: Yep. yep i think a good way to think about it and this is so what year was it probably 2013 is when i went out to california and hung out with richard schmidt and he kind of wrote like a textbook on motor learning he's like one of the the, the most, the most people. people and him and I worked on like a, a script for a video together and what he taught me and the way I think about it. And this isn't the only way to think about motor learning. And this isn't motor learning in a nutshell, because it's a huge area of research. But this is one element that's helped me understand it a ton. And the idea is, if I'm going to execute a skill in the actual game, my brain has to go through sort of three steps to execute the skill properly. Uh, I'm going to use basketball as an example because I'm kind of more familiar with it, but I think you'll get the point. If I'm going to shoot a three-pointer in a game, I have the ball and my eyes and brain have to read sort of how far I am away from the basket. Now I'm making other reads too. How open am I? How much time I have? But the big one is how far away am I? Of course, my brain doesn't give me a number like, oh, you're 30 feet away. No, but I'm sort of detecting that. The next step after the read is the plan. Now my brain has to decide, well, how hard should I shoot this to go in? Where am I aiming? How much force? And then the do is I shoot the ball. I read, I plan, I do, and it happens like that fast. Mm Okay. Okay. That's true in any open skilled sport. That's true in football. That's true in golf. That's true in volleyball. Like if I'm going to hit a putt in, in golf, the read is the green. What's the slope? What's that look like? The plan is I need to aim there and hit it this hard. And then the do is the putt. Okay. Read, plan, do every time. Now the question to ask is, well, which one of those steps is most important? I think they're all important. (laughs) Like if I could have perfect form, the do, I could have like the best looking shot ever. But if I don't read properly, I'm going to miss the shot. Now, if I don't have great technique, my skill is limited as well. My argument is it's hard to say which one's more important than the others. But what we, I think, can agree on is each one matters. (laughs) Like each one is going to matter in executing the skill. The problem is if we only engage in the static or block practice where we're doing the same things a bunch of times in a row. The way I used to practice shooting a basketball would be I'd shoot a hundred shots from one spot before I'd move, okay? What's wrong with that? If you go back to read, plan, do, I'm shooting a hundred shots from one spot. I'm getting a hundred do's I'm getting one new read and one new plan and then 99 rinse and repeat. I'm going to make a ton of those shots because it's easy. I don't have to make a new read. I don't have to make a new plan. And I'm just doing, 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 doing. The problem is I need to be good at reading and planning if I want to be good at shooting a ball in the game. So what would be a way to improve that drill? I could just move. Two feet, one way or the other. As soon as I move even a little bit, it takes my brain out of autopilot. I have to make a new read, a new plan, and a new do. So I could still be focused on my technique. There's no defense. I'm getting a lot of reps. But by simply moving a little each time, it takes my brain out of autopilot. Now I get 100 reads, 100 plans, 100 deuce. And so that's a way to improve the quality of the drill, it's a small adjustment that would make it way better. Now we go back to the trap. If I don't move, I will probably make more out of the 100 than if I do move. And that goes back to the question. Is the goal to look good right now and make more out of the 100 or is the goal to be better prepared to make a three-point shot on Friday night when the scoreboard's on? And that's the tough part. That's the tough part.
2: Definitely. I'm just going to take a moment just to, um, guys in the audience, you know, just to uh, refresh the room a little bit. We've got um, Trevor Reagan with me today, a uh, live edition of the Cultures Network podcast. Follow the follow the discussion, you know, use the hashtag uh, the Cultures Network podcast on Twitter, uh, join in the discussion, get some questions going. Um, there'll be an opportunity for people to ask questions at the back end of this, um, but definitely stay tuned in. Some fascinating stuff to come, I'm sure. Uh, Trevor's great. And if you haven't already tuned into the first episode with Trevor, that's episode thirty that you can find on all major platforms. Uh, the link would be in my bio on the Instagram, which you can obviously pull off my profile. Um, but back to the conversation, Trev. You know, you make a great point there. In, in that, it comes back to that question. You get those hundred reads. I guess a couple of questions I've got for you then on, on that one. Then is in that process, you know, I could kind of maybe just share a little bit about the way I work with my players, and maybe you can kind of work off that. Mm-hmm. Is I've co- from when I first started coaching, maybe about just over ten years ago. I've gone from being a coach who's very uh, directive around what I wanted to see and how I wanted to, I probably did a lot of that block practice stuff to now I've kind of shifted maybe mm-hmm. right over to the other end of the spectrum. And it's, you know, it's, it's still, play, I still consider it being player-centered, but um, it's not completely. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's, mm-hmm. it's still heavily coach-led or maybe uh, inter-led, if you like, um, <clears throat> or dual-led, however you wish to view it. But essentially where I've gone with it now is I'm now getting to the point where I'm just asking questions. Yep. I'm really getting, really getting my athletes or my players to really think about, right, what is it that you're what is it that you experiencing in each of these moments? So, you know, it kind of, I guess, sinks in well with some of this bit that you used to go on about in terms of reading, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more curious, right? What are you reading in each situation? Yeah. It, what would be some of the questions that you potentially be asking your athletes? So some of the ones just to kind of give you, uh, I guess, a bit more context around what I would do is not just paying attention to the environment in terms of who's around, where are you, how far, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, the state of the game, what time of the game might we be, I guess, trying to refer to if it is a training context or if it is yep. a, a context, but also I, I, I may be trying to go one deeper and get them to be more attuned with how they're actually feeling in yep. the moment, um, both from a physiological perspective, but from a, I guess, psych and, you know, emotional perspective, Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Firstly, and in a way, yeah, let's
3: go for it. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. So, reading is so complex because it's like everything is reading. Now, what you're talking about oh is God, kind so of the decision making under the reading. So it's like, so it's like okay, okay, if I shoot a shot, it's show. like, well, was I open? So in that case, it would be reading the defenders and the location and understanding the the scenario. The the reading I was just talking about is. Like the sort of subconscious calculation that's happening in my brain of like, how do I...
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals. And the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously.
3: How do I execute the the skill so this shot goes in? Um, So like that, there's really not too many questions questions to ask. You can't just be like, hey, "Hey, what did you read there? And the output is like, oh, I thought I was 20 feet away, but it was actually 18. It's like, nah. (laughs) like, of course, there's no questions asked there. I like the questions you're asking because you're creating more understanding of the context the situation the decisions that we're making and why we made those decisions like those are all great questions for sure because you're just like increasing the depth and understanding of the 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 strategy or the, whatever decision it was that we made so yes a lot of those questions are great and we should be asking them all the time when i'm saying like the if we kind of just zoom out what i would recommend the way i think of of building a drill or even a practice schedule would be first the first question i'm gonna ask and try to answer is how do we increase the reps like how do we get creative and make a drill how do we increase the reps in a drill how do we get rid of people standing in line whether it's shrinking down the the teams or adding more balls whatever it may be that's my number one question let's do the thing more Number two would be how do I create more reads in the drill, more decision making? Are you familiar with baseball? Like,
2: very, very, basic. a little bit. Okay, I, I know what the game looks like. Really sure. sure.
3: So, so every at every level of baseball, the warm up is the same, like taking infield. So the coach gets the team out there, and then the coach will. Hit a ball to the third baseman, then the shortstop, then the second, then first, then left, then center, then right, and we go through every time. Same order every time. Okay. What would make that drill better?
2: Uh, first and foremost, maybe change the order.
3: Boom. Uh, yeah, uh, it's
2: beyond that. Maybe maybe the type of type of hit that's being uh, played in. So rather than just yeah. being maybe through the ball, it might be slightly up, slightly lower, or, or whatever. Just put in For some. Sure. As, as much as possible
3: and think that might seem like a small adjustment but think of the power of this if the coach randomizes the order and just doesn't tell you because the way we do it now we tell you it's like here you go shortstop, boom what if i just don't tell you now think about what happens the old way If I'm playing third base and you hit me a grounder, I know that you're not going to hit me another ball for like eight more rounds. Like I know that. This way, I have to watch every swing. Every player has to watch every swing and read it off the bat because it might be coming to me. And that's more like a game. The old way, I watch one swing and I don't really care for the other eight. And so, look, that's a, like the smallest of adjustments. Every player is still getting the same amount of warm up reps. They still get their three, but just adding the unpredictability actually makes that drill way better because now every player is engaged in every swing, which is more like the game. And so, that's like a lot of these things that I'm talking about. This doesn't require a total revamp of the drills and practices that we already use. It just requires a bit of creativity to adjust them in a way that would make them a bit better. Adding more unpredictability in the right way makes most drills better.
2: So just on that, then you know, you talk about adding that unpredictability. Um, where do you want to kind of aim our sweet spot? Shall we say, Oh, is it down the complete random or slightly variable um because obviously we want to move away from the constant uh element but we want to kind of keep it as random and unpredictable as possible but in doing that i guess i can give you an example and coming back to some of the work i've done i might have a a, an exercise where you know the the players within it might be working for 90 seconds and that might be the 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 overall the structure of the practice shall we say um however Depending on what's happened within those ninety seconds, could dictate different outcomes. It could it, it could be that if they haven't achieved certain amount of outcomes, that that, that ninety seconds goes beyond. Um, if they do achieve sure. certain outcomes, the ninety seconds can be cut short. Um, but obviously, mm-hmm. I've planned it in a way where if whatever it's going to take for them to maybe cut the ninety seconds short, will also maybe cause the intensity that they're working at to go higher. If that makes sense. Yep. So I guess. That's- from that perspective, you know, what are we, what are we trying to, I guess, hit on in terms of the sweet spot?
3: So the way I think about it is this. There's a lot of ways to make practice harder. There's a lot of ways to increase struggle. There's a lot of ways to increase pressure and unpredictability. You see this a lot in the basketball world, and I call it fake hard. So like if you go on Instagram and watch how people practice basketball, they have all sorts of like toys. They're doing these ridiculous stunts that like look cool. It's like really hard. They're like blindfolded dribbling a tennis ball and like have a hula hoop around their waist or something. It's like, okay, that's hard, but that's fake hard. I don't have to have a tennis ball when I play basketball. I don't have to be blindfolded when I play basketball. I don't have to have a hula hoop around my my waist when I play basketball. So my thing is add or use the real life variables to make the thing more difficult. Use those. So what you're doing is brilliant. In the game, there's pressure. And so adding that time element is increasing pressure. That's good. So what we're trying to do is, I just like we did five minutes ago with the TED talk, it's like, what are the variables I see? There's Price. an audience, there's, there's, audience pressure, there's pressure, It's one, it's shot, one shot, no, no reduced, reduced, and there's no notes, boom. Now take those four elements and start to incorporate them into practice in the right way. We're in good shape. The other thing we can do is sort of a gauge on how difficult a practice is. And are we going too far? You can use sort of, and this, this is relevant just for sports and in other things. Maybe we don't have these, but in sports we have benchmark stats. So like I know in basketball, what my players are capable of shooting from three-point range. Like a good three-point shooter shoots like 40%. If I make a drill in practice where they're hitting 80% of their shots, it's probably too easy. But then the same is true on the flip side. If I make a drill that's so ridiculous that they can only hit 10% of their shots, it's probably too hard. And so what I'm looking for, you said the sweet spot would be, well, if I'm trying to make it game-like we can expect if they're hitting 30 to 50% somewhere in there, that drill is probably the right amount of like game-like or the right amount of difficulty. And so you can kind of use these benchmark stats. Now, depending on the players, we kind of have an idea of where they're at. And that, that's not the only way, but that's one way to kind of gauge like, all right, are we going like a little too crazy here? Or is it way, way, way too easy?
2: No, it makes, makes complete sense there. And obviously, you know, just identifying the right levels of, um, I guess, difficulty in the practice. I want to kind of bring it back to, you know, the topic that we touched on in the start. So obviously we talked to different, you know, some different ways there in which we can kind of adjust and adapt the practice to kind of uh, create more challenging or slightly less challenging, I uh, guess, act, uh, activity for the player, if you like. In terms of the resilience piece now, how do we adapt or develop practice to kind of really tackle that side of things and really help them become more resilient. And obviously, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a part of that would be playing around with that dial, as, as I mentioned, around the pressure and difficulty of the practice. Yep. Um, is there anything else outside of that that you might look to do or, or yeah. maybe further the detail on that element?
3: Yeah, so first, we just need to be clear. Resilience is a skill. So just like any skill, what we want, we want more reps. We want more practice doing that particular skill. Now, when we're talking about resilience, this is the tough part for leaders and parents and coaches and teachers. Uh, Here's a good way to think about it. I'm squatting and my goal is to do 12 squats and you're spotting me. And I do four squats. And on the fifth, it gets kind of hard. And you go, oh, Trev, I got you. Let me do the last eight for you. And you hop in and do eight for me. Would you ever do that in the weight room? Of course, we wouldn't do that because we know it's like, yo, those eight squats where it's a bit more difficult, those are the ones that matter. like Those are the good ones. And you would never jump in and do them for me. Yet we do that all the time when it comes to learning. We solve people's problems for them. We remove them from the struggle. Now I'm not just saying, let me like hang. If you're spotting me, you're going to probably be encouraging me and cheering me me on. And you might have to help me a little bit on the last couple reps, of course, but you would never rob me of the reps. And so that's a good way to think about like resilience and and building resilience in our athletes is like, look, cheer for me, support me, but don't rob me of my reps. Problem solving is a skill. Bouncing back from a, setback is a skill and the only way to get good at a skill is to do it but i can't become a good problem solver if you solve every problem for me and i can't get good at bouncing back from a setback if i'm never allowed to struggle and fail so step one with all of this is just acknowledging the fact that resilience is a skill and to get good at it, I got to practice it. This doesn't mean we just like let our players go struggle and we don't assist, of course not. We can coach, coach, we can support, support, and we can like encourage them through the challenge, but we can't just remove them from every challenge they face. So I think about that a lot, not robbing people of reps. After that, I think it goes back to like the three skills we identified at the very start of this conversation. First, the belief, helping them understand look, if it's a skill, you can get better, period, end of sentence. We would spend a lot of time on that. We'd spend a lot of time on the discomfort stuff, helping them understand it's okay. And that might seem like a small adjustment, but it might be one of the most important things we can do to become more resilient. Because think about the old way of thinking about tough emotions. I'm trained to think that they're a negative thing. You create a difficult practice. You tell me I have to get rid of my notes. I'm giving my Ted talk with no notes and it makes me feel weird. And I assume, oh, I feel weird. I must be doing something wrong. Give me the notes back. But if you take the time to help me understand that feeling weird is human, that that's just a sign I'm out of my comfort zone, I start to give those tough emotions less attention and power. They don't go away, but I just understand that it's okay to feel them. So now you get rid of my notes. I'm feeling a bit nervous. And now I go, of course, I feel nervous. He got rid of my notes. That is a huge, huge difference than, oh, crap, I'm nervous. I better get the notes back. And then the the third one, that's where we need to ask better questions, the framing stuff. And one of the most powerful questions that you can ask anyone is just, what can we learn from this? Now, that, again, seems simple, but that question is turning their attention to the opportunity within a challenge. So maybe an example would be we're matched up against a team that's much better than us, that is probably going to beat us. It's easy in that scenario to feel kind of hopeless, like, look, we know we're going to lose this match, and probably everyone's been there. But what if we took five minutes before... We started the game and asked the players like, all right, let's be honest. This team is probably going to beat us. And no matter what I say and do, that doesn't really change that. But what can we learn from this? And in that five minute brainstorm, they're going to say stuff like, well, if we could like execute a play against them, we'll be like really prepared to execute against a team that's not as good. Like there's all sorts of opportunities wrapped up in this challenge of playing a team better than us. And what I'm saying is the team that has that discussion, they're going to experience and extract more from the challenge than the team that doesn't, because the team that doesn't is like, well, we're going to lose. What's the point? And in simply asking the question, what can we learn from this? You're turning their attention to the opportunities. The opportunities are in every challenge we face. Yet sometimes we miss them because we're not thinking about them or talking about them. And so that question can direct our focus to those opportunities. Same rules apply if we're playing a team that we know we're going to beat. One option is we kind of go out there and just like we, we kind of go through the motions, we win, it's no problem. But what if we ask them before the game? What can we learn from this? What if we take advantage of the opportunity to experiment with new lineups or new techniques? Like We can work on something we've been working on in practice. There is, again, 100 opportunities in that match, too. And so when it comes to that final skill of resilience and learning, it's, it's framing and it's just kind of stopping and asking that simple yet powerful question. What are the opportunities in this? Like what are the things that can help me grow in this situation? And I've worked with some people in some of the toughest places that I can't even imagine. And that question has helped them so much. Like one of the most resilient people I've ever met in my life. Um, I've done a few workshops inside of prisons. And so I, I met this guy in a prison, his name's Larry. And we became good friends. We stayed in touch through email. And about a year ago he got released and I was like hanging out with him and he was opening up about like his journey and what he's been through. And he's like, yo, I, I was in prison for like 20 years and and the first 15 were absolutely miserable. miserable, And I suffered every day. And I like absolutely hated the environment. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in his shoes. Like I, I, I can't even fathom. But then he goes with five years left in my sentence, I decided I was no longer in prison. I was in college. Because I had two things going for me. I had time on my hands and access access to any book that that I wanted to read. read. And so he starts just devouring devouring books. He He starts teaching all other guys on the inside about the books that he was reading. He He set up a book club club that read Carol Dweck's book. We talked about her last time. He set up the program that brought me in. Now he's out. He learned how to make his own website. And he's like creating videos about stuff like this for other people in prison so they can get out and stay out unbelievable things that he's doing. And I think it's a byproduct of him reframing Reframing his his situation. I am in college. Now, let's just be very clear on this. In reframing his situation, did that change the environment he's in? No. Did it make every day just easy and enjoyable? No. Did it change what he experienced or what he got from the experience? Without a doubt. And so I think about him all the time. In every challenge, there are some opportunities to grow. And when we maintain this growth mindset, when we're willing to feel a bit uncomfortable and we're willing to ask that question, like, what in this can help me grow? That turns our attention to it and we're going to get more from it. This is not fake positivity. And this is not uh, another way to talk about that would be toxic positivity of like, oh, you should just always feel good. No, this is. I feel, I like, feel crap like crap and I'm, and scared, I'm scared and, I'm, and nervous. I'm nervous. And maybe, and maybe this, this environment is a terrible, a terrible environment. And at, and the, at same the same time, time that I'm, I'm feel feeling those things, I'm looking for the opportunity to grow. <laughs> the other lesson I learned from him that I think is like a good place to, I think it's a good time to integrate this and talk about it, especially, especially with resilience. resilience. It's like, I was super guilty of this before I met Larry. I would tell people that they should love the struggle, love the obstacles, love the challenges. Love is a great word, but not for like big time challenges. And so Larry taught me, instead of saying love, you should say appreciate. It's like, look, we can appreciate there are opportunities in this challenge. We don't have to love every challenge. We don't have to love every loss. Like we're in a losing streak. We don't have to love it. we can appreciate appreciate there's opportunities opportunities within the losing streak we don't have to love that we're about to play a team that's going to beat beat us us, but but we can can appreciate appreciate. the opportunities in it and i just think that word shows a bit more empathy and so i try to use that word a lot when we're We're talking talking, with anyone really especially athletes it's like look this is going to be hard and this is going to be scary and those tough emotions are part of the situation and we can't really get rid of them but what opportunities can we appreciate in this moment and let's list them. And that's a good way of practicing resilience. And you're putting all three of those tools into practice, the belief we could grow willingness to feel and appreciating those opportunities. That's sort of the, the three pronged approach that we want to build to become better learners. And those are the three tools I think that are the key to becoming more resilient too. Awesome.
2: Guys, you know, again, we've got, uh, live live edition of the coaches network podcast here you're tuned in uh listening to trevor reagan founder of the learner lab uh, where we're discussing developing more resilient athletes um and just just developing resilience across the board really guys uh be sure to click on both our profiles hit the follow button and hit the bell so that you're informed of any conversation that we're going to be having in the future take some time to use the hashtag the coaches network on twitter join the discussion. Um, There will be an opportunity shortly. I know a couple of people got their hands up already, um, but there will be an opportunity shortly for people to ask questions. Um, We're almost there, guys, but, you know, stay tuned. Fascinating conversation so far. Let us know your thoughts. Um, And if you can just take a moment now just to ping some people into the room as well, that would be fantastic as well. Um, Just get get the conversation building up um, with some more people in the audience. Drew, I've noticed that obviously, you know, you put your hand up to come to the stage. I'm not sure whether you're going to have a question or something to add to what Trevor's just said there. No,
4: I, um, I, I saw you ping me an invite and I, I had a spare 20 minutes so I'm always interested in the subjects you guys are talking about so I, I jumped up uh, it, uh, but, but you know, on, on Sana um, everything she said there I think, I think for me that really kind of hit a court um, I think why is because I, I've only ever lived in professional sport um, 27 years now of living in there you know, 17 years as a, as a player and 10 years now as a coach And on the job in the trenches when the bullets are flying and the mud's flying and there's debris everywhere and there's dreams getting shattered and shredded, you have to be really reactive in the moment. And um, so I was thinking about SANA and I was thinking about potentially just working with these guys who are in toxic environments. That's my work all day long, Um, completely toxic environments, finding solutions in the moment within 24 hours of a game, having to speak to guys while they're flying to games, while they're in a hotel two hours before a game sometimes an hour before kickoff when they'll call me from the toilet, from the toilets in the locker room. Um, shit, I've just been told this by the coach. He said, whatever, whatever you're doing today, don't make this run. That costs us points. You've got to. Okay. 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 Breathe, breathe, breathe. What are you going to do? Well, I said, fuck him. Fuck him and fuck him. Like you only have your gut instinct. You don't want to be on that bed tonight at home having sold out on yourself. And and you have to go and back yourself. So if he's telling you he doesn't want you receiving the ball there, ignore it. Go and get the ball there if that's your instinct. When you make it happen in that area and you create, which you will, because that's who you are, you will get a clap and a wolf whistle from the touchline, a thumbs up, and you're told you're brilliant. Because I lived that for 16 years until I walked into rehab. Every time I listened to my instinct, one of the best players on the pitch. Every time I didn't, I'm drowning. So... it's really interesting and and i swear a little bit but i I live in the trenches every day the environments in the main are very toxic at the pro level in the main, um 90 plus percent of them because fear fear runs amok Um, fear fear to performance and creativity is what cancer is to the body it's it's it's, it gets into the system and it slowly eats away uh, players instincts um so people are saying well these guys are," and I'm talking about multi-millionaire footballers why aren't these guys resilient Well, what's resilience they weren't emotionally and spiritually prepared for the war that was coming when they were coming through the system 10 to 18, 19. their talent's there their talent's there their talent's there
3: you're coming up through the ranks your talent's there and all of a sudden you make the grade well now now the heat gets
4: turned up it's now pressure's on the line jobs are on the line money's on the line big money when there's money, there's more pressure. Where there's more pressure, where there's more fear. So, yeah, it, it's creating resilience for these guys. What I see missing day in, day out, and the coaches are all missing it, because a lot of the coaches are my friends. They're ex-players with decorated careers who have all the licenses and badges. They don't know how to create emotionally and spiritually resilient human beings. Um, and, and it touches on a lot of what Trevor was saying. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, for me, that's my, my aim, is to create spiritually and emotionally uh, resilient human beings. What a spiritually emotionally, what a spiritually resilient athlete would look like or human being would be using great words like acceptance and letting go and surrender and powerlessness, which in, in, in professional sport, and look, I was an alpha male, six foot three, 90 kilogram assassin paid to go and beat people up. Um, <laughs> but when I started word, learning words like surrender and powerlessness and letting go, that was very alien to me. But they're life-changing words at the highest level, because you're able then to to just accept people on people's terms, or accept it you, you learn to accept the sickness inside your leaders and the coaches, and have compassion and empathy, and, and that takes you to an incredible place. So I'm going to finish, but yeah, it sort really triggered that, and, um, yeah, spiritual and emotional resilience.
2: Uh, thank you for that, Jude. I really appreciate that. Thank you for you know chiming in with that, and you know we'll, we'll touch back on I guess the conversation we're going to be taking place next week as well. Um, yeah, I apologise, I apologize. I'm going to jump off now, mate, I'm really sorry, because I, I, I swear, I live in the trenches, so the guy's
4: drugs and swearing is, I think if, if people can really realise what's going on at the top level, I think it's really going to help a lot of parents, because I'm working with the parents and kids on, on schooling them and getting them ready for the pro game, so um, yeah, I apologies if, if I swear or I, I talk about this stuff, but I, I live in there all day,
2: but have a great evening. No problem, cheers for that, Drew. Um, Nick? Question from you, Nick. Nick, thank you for coming to the stage. What's your question? Evening, yes. Thanks for having me, up, mate. Um, evening, Trevor. Um, great, listen so far, mate.
5: Um, what's what's really interested me is, is again, it's something that that Sana uh, was starting to talk about was the environment. Um, and coming from a coaching background, um, really interests me in how how I as a coach do I create the the optimum environment to to sort of develop and um, almost recreate that resilience that we've been talking about. So if the environment is so safe, uh, yeah, fine, we want we want players to be able to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes. If it's that relaxed and that welcoming and that warm, is the resilience really being learned there? Like, uh, like Drew's talking about, that, that sort of fear of the fear itself is totally removed. So, is resilience really being learned? So, and that's a bit of an open ended question, really. But from a coach's point of view, not not so much from a player's point of view, but from a coach's point of view, how do you go about recreating or creating an environment that's, that's going to give you them optimum levels of
4: returns in resilience? I suppose. Yep. So, when I feel safe, I'm more likely to make an attempt. I'm more likely to speak up. I'm actually more likely to have a conversation. And so, like, when we say safety, that doesn't mean soft and doesn't mean problem-free. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of looking at it with, uh, from, from sort of two angles, really. So, being a, being a coach and being a head
3: coach, so I'm trying to manage the players as well as the coaches. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a bit of a tough juggling act that we're trying to find the right balance where... I want it to be a
5: safe environment and it should be a safe environment and encouraging, but I want them to be stretched. I want it to be resilient, especially at at, at the top level that we're working at. Mm -hmm. And again, it's it's playing that balancing act um, and trying to to communicate that with my staff in a sense that um, you get staff that may be a bit gung-ho and want to take that resilience building a bit too far.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, am, I am doing the, the the opposite, you know, not taking it far enough. Just Nick, just want to add to something that uh, Trevor said there initially as well, um, around you know, I guess celebrating the, the the effort or the attempt. I think you can maybe go one a, a little bit further and it'd be interesting. to Get your views on this as well, Trevor, in in maybe being a bit more specific with the feedback. So yes, celebrate the attempt, but maybe draw on something that you can maybe pull on as as a as a positive from the attempt. So as an example. You know, if, if someone's taken a shot, you know, praise them for the bit that they've done well. So that could be, you know, the way that they've maybe held the defender off or they may, the way they've shifted the ball to actually get the strike off or maybe the, the strike itself hasn't been clean enough. But praise them on the bits that have actually gone well and that gives them something yeah. something to refer back to as well.
5: Yeah, I certainly agree. I think the, um, the power of that sort of positive reinforcement... Um, is uh is a bit of a signal to, to, to the wider group as well. But I think yeah. it only takes for that positive reinforcement to be given to one person and the rest of the squad or team their ears prick up and think, Well we want to be praised as well, well because yeah. we all do, isn't it? Um and I think that positive is powerful, yeah. Yeah, and I think the praise it's sends a signal to everybody
4: about the values of the group so essentially when you praise something you're saying this matters here only praising performance that can be a dangerous signal if I pick up on that signal I might stop trying
2: to- now thank you Nick for coming to the stage with a question um, guys just uh, you know as we look to kind of round up um, first of all you know, thank you to my guest this evening uh, Trevor it's been fascinating conversation again as ever um i'm sure there'll be plenty of listeners wanting to kind of pull in maybe ask you some more questions so guys just on that note um hit hit both our profiles hit the follow button hit the bell um so you can be informed when we're going to have future discussions uh both together or, or separately um head over to our instagrams and twitters to follow us and i'm uh, well, travel i'm not sure if you're on instagram but um guys definitely head over follow us um Follow the Cultures Network podcast. You know, use the hashtag, the Cultures Network podcast on Twitter. Join the discussion. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else has got a question, um, but I've just received a message from my wife, Trev. Um, she said that you're, you, you were absolutely amazing tonight. <laughs> uh, and that's <laughs> your first episode as well. Episode 30 for anyone that's <laughs> interested in uh, following that up. Uh, coaches network podcasts on all major platforms uh, you can click on my profile go to my Instagram you'll find the link in the bio there um, it's one last I guess call Life. if anyone's got any questions for Trevor before we, before we finish off well there we have it then Trevor you know Trevor uh, just on a final note would you mind uh, for any listeners that do want to get in touch with you maybe find out a little bit more about what you do and the work that you've done in the past um, where they can get in touch with you to do that Yep,
3: go to thelearner.com. I think our video is very good. And it does a
4: good job of kind of rounding out that element that we touched on today about the tough emotions.
2: Um, so there's a lot of it on the website. Awesome. Thank you for that, Trevor. Again, once again, guys, it's Trevor Reagan, uh, founder of the Learner Lab. And, you know, again, it's a live, live edition of the Cultures Network podcast. You've been tuned into. Um, I'm going to end the room now, guys, but it'd be great for you guys to guys maybe continue the discussion on Twitter, get in touch on Instagram, um, and then keep an eye out for our next conversation. We've got one coming up on Tuesday evening. Um, but head over to the Twitter and the Instagram find out more about that. Trevor, thank you again for your time this evening. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being with us. Take care. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement.